0: Thanks, Carol. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here this morning. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, hang on to them. We need them uh, so we can see what God says to us in his word this morning. Uh, And I know you've already been encouraged in this passage as you've uh, heard the kids talk and everything else that's going on. But let's pray and ask uh, God to help us as we reflect on it a little further. Let's do that. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning for the wonderful privilege of having a God who loves us. God who sends his son into the world to die on our behalf. Father, thank you uh, for your word by which we know you. Please help us to understand what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought I might begin today by reading uh, from this little book, uh, Nothing in My Hand I Bring by Ray Galia. Some of you will per- perhaps have read it. Just want to read um, from one of the introductions to one of his chapters here <clears throat> as I kick off. He says, picture the day when we will all stand before our maker the day of the Lord, as the Bible calls it, or judgment day. On that day, when our turn comes, God will either welcome us into his eternal kingdom or consign us to the outer darkness. We will be saved or damned. Upon this, nearly all Christians everywhere agree. But here is the big question. Some might say the biggest of all questions. Upon what basis will God judge us on that day? To put it a little crudely, How will he decide whether I am in or out? What is the way of salvation? How is it that sinful people like us could ever be be declared just or righteous and so be worthy of God's eternal kingdom? Well, uh, Ray's question is, what is the way of salvation? Uh, Or how can a person be right with God? Now, if you're a long-term Christian, you might be thinking, well, we already know the answer to that question, Rod. It's probably time to move on. Uh, And I'm sure you do know the answer to that question. Uh, And I think, as uh, David Cook reminds us in his commentary on this passage, he says, the things that go without saying need to be said. And it might go without saying, for example, that you love your wife or husband, but it needs to be said. Uh, And probably a little bit more often in my case. But you can check with Leonie later. We might know the way of salvation, but we actually need to keep articulating it. Uh, and I can, I can think of at least three reasons why we should. Uh, first, there are always people among us who are not sure about how we can be in a right relationship with God, and they need to have a chance to find out. Secondly, the way of salvation, or what we might summarise by the word the gospel, uh, is the essence of what Jesus is doing in our world. And it's the basis and the motivation for which we live every single day of our lives. And third, not everyone who claims to be Christian is clear about the way of salvation. And so it's important that we keep clearing up false thinking about it. Now for Paul and Barnabas, this was uh, an issue of paramount importance. Uh, To misunderstand the way of salvation is to miss out on salvation. And So this issue here in chapter 15 is of great importance, both for the early church, but also for us today. Uh, It's the issue that leads to the first ever church council. Uh, It's a question about the adequacy of the gospel. Is the gospel adequate for a person's salvation? Well, some say no. Have a look at the issue here in verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now the presenting issue here is the issue of circumcision. Uh, Some Jewish Christians have traveled from Judea in the south to Antioch, uh, and they were telling the believers that even though they believed in Jesus, they couldn't be saved unless they were circumcised in compliance with the law of Moses. Now, for us, it's uh, no great issue today. However, circumcision was the burning debate of early Christianity. Male circumcision was a symbolic marker of God's covenant relationship with Israel. And so the issues arise because the gospel is now spreading quickly to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Uh, Remember, Paul and Barnabas are just back from their first missionary journey. Uh, The gospel's been going out to non-Jews who have been embracing the good news of Jesus. But the Jew himself or herself saw the Gentile world as pagan, as full of corruption and idolatry. And now the Gentiles are pouring into the church. But from a Jewish perspective... Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so if a Gentile wanted to follow the Jewish Messiah, then they first had to become a Jew by being circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. But that's not what's happening. The Gentile converts are being welcomed into the church without circumcision. In other words, they were becoming Christians without becoming Jews. But the crucial issue here is not actually circumcision, it's whether or not the gospel is adequate for salvation. Is trusting in Jesus for forgiveness all that is needed to be saved, or is there more? See, these Jews wanted to add circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses to the gospel for for salvation. Trusting in Jesus alone wasn't enough. And verse 2 says that this caused Paul and, and Barnabas to have no small dispute with them. In other words, it was a big one. Uh, Now we might feel a little uncomfortable to see this conflict between believers here, but we need to realise the seriousness of the issue. The Bible is very clear that the only way to be saved is by faith in Jesus. And so to add anything to Jesus is to lose Jesus as our Saviour. These Jewish believers were actually saying that Jesus was good, but Jesus alone was not enough to save them. The reason for the serious dispute is because some, especially Paul, were saying, yes, he is. He is enough. And it wasn't a matter on which they could politely agree to disagree. In fact, the the issue here is so serious that a delegation is sent uh, with Paul and Barnabas up to the big kahunas, I'm not sure that's a technical term, but uh, to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to resolve this issue. And can I say, it's it's not too big a claim, I don't think, to say that the whole future of the church hung in the balance at this point. This is a genuine threat to the future of Jesus' ongoing mission in our world. Will this stop the unstoppable gospel? In verse 4, we read that the delegation arrives in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the whole church. They're reporting all that God has been doing. But the matter is still very much alive. Look at verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And in the following uh, verses, Luke records the decisive moments and outcomes of what has become known as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, after considerable debate, uh, the apostle Peter stands up to have his say. Uh, now, Peter is, uh, this is Peter's final appearance in Acts. Uh, from now on, Paul is the dominant figure as the gospel goes increasingly to the Gentiles. But Peter's contribution here is critical. Um, now, this isn't a, a new issue for Peter. In fact, he's had his own struggles with it. And we read in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, a letter that the Apostle Paul writes. Uh, he, Paul, Paul recalls an unhappy time when the Apostle Peter himself had visited the Antioch church Uh, And the problem is there then. Let let me just pick it up. from It's on the screen here, Galatians 2. It's a reasonable long reading. I'm going to pick it up from verse 11. Now, Peter is sometimes called Peter, sometimes Cephas, sometimes Simeon. He's the same guy, the Apostle Peter. Verse 11 of Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is actually a a staggering account of a time when Peter himself had been led astray over this very issue. Uh, And notice just how critical this issue is here for Paul. See what he says in verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Or in verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, Peter knew that not even Jews could be justified, couldn't be saved by keeping the law. And that's why he had put his faith in Jesus. So how ridiculous to expect Gentiles to have to keep the law. Now, historically, Galatians chapter 2 actually comes before Acts 15, the Jerusalem council. And so pretty clear, Peter had learnt his lesson. Now, that's clear from what he says here in Acts, picking it up from verse 7. Have a look there at verse 7 of chapter 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. See, Peter remembers his time with Cornelius back in chapter 10, the Gentile, and reminds the crowd that God had poured out his Spirit on the Gentiles without their being circumcised. And so it's actually putting God to the test to expect the Gentiles to keep the law that they couldn't even keep. There's only one way to be saved for both Jew and Gentile, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. See, here is the critical answer to the question posed by Ray Galia in his book, what is the way of salvation? How is it that sinful people like us can ever be declared to be right with God and worthy of his kingdom? Well, the Apostle Peter says that we will be saved by grace, the undeserved favor of God. Now, earlier he said that God cleansed their hearts by faith and gave them this Holy Spirit as evidence that he had accepted them. See, God didn't demand anything of either Jew or Gentile in return for their salvation. He graciously declared them to be saved and in the right with him when they put their faith in Jesus. Salvation is all of God, a gracious gift that we receive only through trusting in the death of Jesus for our forgiveness so that our hearts are cleansed from anything that we have ever done. It's great news, isn't it? These Jews were wrong to try and add to the work of Christ as if it was inadequate. But it's not just the Jews and circumcision, is it? I mean, Christians have continued to do similar things throughout the centuries. Uh, the issue is in a different form actually raised its head again in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century under guys like Martin Luther. Uh, there were some catch cries of the Protestant Reformation that centred on this issue of how a person can be saved. That is, they said it was by sola gratia, that is, by grace alone, through sola fide, through faith alone, in solo Christo, in Christ alone, that a person is saved. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's how a person is saved. Now, sadly, there are still many Christians who, on one hand, would actually claim agreement with those three solas, and yet, in practice, they live by a fourth. It's called solar bootstrapsis. Actually, I just made that one up. But anyway, um, that is, some Christians live with the false belief that God helps those who help themselves. They believe that Jesus saves them, but they'll actually finally be accepted by God based on their performance as Christians. Now, can I say that is a disastrous and a debilitating way for Christians to live because even as a Christian when do you ever live up to your own standards let alone God's it means you're never sure whether or not God will accept you in the end but we neither get right with God nor stay right with God based on anything we do or don't do You can go to any church, no matter how good that church is, and you'll find people who know the words grace and faith, but who still don't get what they mean. Why did Jesus die? Because we can't save ourselves no matter how hard we try. We can't cleanse our own hearts. Well, the final say of the Jerusalem Council... On this matter comes from James. Now James is the brother of Jesus. He has become a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he picks up on the claims that Peter has made, and he says that the Old Testament prophets agree, the, that is the, the scriptures of the Old Testament agree. And he quotes from them. Amos chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, you'll find it there in, in Acts 15. He quotes from Amos chapter 9 to show the expectation of of God from the beginning that gentiles will come in and be included among the people of God now can I say incidentally here is the right way to deal with disagreements in the church it's not our opinions or how we like to think about something or what we feel or what the world thinks we should think what does God say in his word it's not my role to play God by ignoring his word and so having done that in verse 19, James hands down his verdict. See what he says verse 19 there? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That is, the final say of the Jerusalem Council was a win for freedom. Christianity was liberated from the view that it was merely a Jewish sect. Both Jew and Gentile are now united as one people of God. Christianity was uh, liberated from the continuing misguided view that our our acceptability to God is dependent on our performance, the rituals we keep, the laws we obey, that kind of thing. And so we continue to be indebted to the deliberations and the verdicts of the Jerusalem Council. It's crystal clear that there is absolutely nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation It's wholly and completely the gracious gift of God. Now, if you think you can do something to help God accept you, you just show that you don't yet fully understand what God has done for you. And notice that the verdict of the Jerusalem Council goes further. Uh, It's not simply a win for freedom, it's also a win here for love. Uh, Their freedom from the constraints and errors of religious observance and human performance is important, but so is the way that we use our freedom now, notice that James' verdict goes further than verse 19. So verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, the, the council sends a letter back to the Gentile churches around Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, as well as Judas and Silas from the Jerusalem church to inform them of their decision. They make it clear that they don't have to be circumcised or obey the law of Moses to be saved. But then they notice they add a list of four things that they should avoid. Four Mosaic laws. They come from Leviticus 17 and 18. And so the question is why? What's the significance of asking them to abstain from these four things? Is it a contradiction? Well, there's two things to say. The key key here in one sense is that each of these things Uh, that verse 29 says that they will do well to keep away from is that they're all associated with idolatry, with uh, pagan temple practices. Uh, Sexual immorality, of course, sounds a little bit out of place because it's wrong whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, one way or the other. But given its connection with idolatry, it possibly refers to the practice of temple prostitution. The Gentiles graciously saved and welcomed into the people of God are to leave paganism behind Because idolatry is consistent with embracing the one and only true God. However, notice the reason that James actually gives here. The reason for why they should especially avoid these things. Look at verse 21. He says, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, since the earliest times, Jews were taught that these things were offensive to God. The issue here is one of church unity. Paul was absolutely unwilling to compromise the truth of the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone and circumcision is completely neutral. But once that's established, then the issues of love and unity are paramount. Paul wants the Gentiles to use their freedom to express their love and unity with their fellow Jewish believers. They could do that by avoiding things that would unnecessarily offend their consciences. Nothing wrong with eating meat with blood in it, but for the Jews, they had been told for generations that it's offensive to God. A large part of the Salvation Army's work from the beginning has been with alcoholics. Uh, And even though they know that drinking alcohol is not wrong, they choose to abstain from drinking alcohol out of love for those they serve. There there will always be matters where we should willingly choose to forego our freedoms for the sake of love and unity. Or so as not to offend the sensitive consciences of other believers. You know, I even remember uh, back to when we first amalgamated with the St Edmunds, uh, the traditional congregation that used to be a part of our church life here. And at the time, it gave me opportunity to consider how my own actions expressed my love for a group of Christian brothers and sisters whose expression of church life was very different from mine. Uh, there were a few things that, if I were to choose to exercise my freedom for my benefit, uh, then I would have perhaps done differently. I don't, for example, enjoy uh, or feel comfortable wearing clerical robes. I'd prefer not to. You notice that I don't. However, Uh, As I thought through how I should handle it at the time, I came to the view that it wasn't a gospel issue, nor was it a godliness issue. I was certainly free not to wear those robes. They they didn't mean anything. But for the sake of loving my fellow Christians, I chose to use my freedom to serve them. In fact, we we see how Paul himself was able to relax relax his attitude to circumcision once the truth has been firmly established. I mean, salvation was by grace alone and circumcision itself was in no way required, but it was neutral. And in chapter 16, verse 3, Paul wants to take Timothy along with him on the second missionary journey, which he's heading out on. Uh, But his his mum was Jewish and his father was Greek. And so he's not circumcised. And so Paul circumcises Timothy for the sake of the Jews in the places where he would be ministering. Now, it seems strange, doesn't it, given how strong Paul has just fought against it? But it has now been established as a non-gospel issue, and so it has become a matter of freedom. His decision to circumcise Timothy is consistent with the intention of the letter that was sent to the Gentiles. However, it's it's probably important also to recognise that the reason that Paul would have been willing to circumcise Timothy is because he was the son of a Jew. And Paul was always willing to be a Jew to the Jews so that they might be able to hear the good news of Jesus. However, there are times when we should not budge. It's inconceivable that Paul would have circumcised a Gentile because that would run the risk of communicating that Gentiles too must be circumcised. Now, there will always be some things that we should never compromise on. Circumcising Gentiles and law-keeping were being made into gospel issues, but they're not. And you know, conflict in the church among believers is is perhaps one of the most difficult issues we face. We rightly hate the idea of conflict. We rightly cringe at the idea of Christians at odds with one another. I I know people who have left the church because of conflict. But can I say the problem is not conflict as such. Um, and the main problem comes in the way that we handle conflict. And we know that, don't we? I mean, there are plenty of wrong ways. Walking away when we don't like something. Sorry, I've got a little bug on here. Uh, being overly or unfairly critical. gossiping about what we don't like rather than talking to those to resolve an issue. Breaking fellowship with fellow Christians over non-essentials. See, Jesus wants his church to be known for their love and unity. And this chapter, I think, is a great help to us in working out how to properly deal with conflict within the church. Sadly, there may be times when we are better to engage the conflict than to preserve the peace. Christianity is not about peace at any cost. Paul engaged in this sharp dispute because it was of absolute importance. And as Christians, we have to be grateful that these men stood up and stood firm in opposing the Jews who demanded circumcision for salvation. And if these men hadn't, hadn't have stood for this issue, then the whole history of the Christian world would have been changed. We should never be willing to compromise the truth of the gospel, even if that means conflict. It's another example, I think, of how Jesus ensured that the good news of salvation would not be stopped, that it would continue to go forward as it should. The Jerusalem Council was a win for truth and freedom. However, it was also a win for love and unity. It's a great model, I think, of how we preserve the fellowship uh, fellowship and unity of church life. I mean, sometimes Christians and churches are guilty of conflict over things that do not matter. That's not love. We should repent of those things. We should be like Paul, strong in faith and soft in love. And no wonder, can I say, our passage concludes the way it does in chapter 16, verse 5. Have a look at that, chapter 16, verse 5. So, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. See, nothing strengthens the church more than a right understanding of God's grace. We can be sure that we are saved in a right relationship with God and certain of acceptance by God on the day of judgment because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and nothing else. And that great truth frees us to get on with loving others and sharing such a great great salvation with whoever we meet. Well, we're going to spend some time praying together about that and Roger's going to come now.